Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the High Low, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast Brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And it's Christmas! Sort of, almost. I love December. Me too. My tree is up. Been working to Christmas carols. Oh, I have as well. Carols from Kings. You can get classical Christmas as well on Spotify. So nice. Been rinsing all of it. I listened to back-to-back Christmas music on Saturday while I had an absolute nightmare putting my tree up. Why? Because putting a six-foot tree up on, on your my own, own. <laughs> it actually got to a point where it took me, I would say, four and a half hours, and it got to a point where I was almost watching myself do it, and I just thought this would be a montage in a rom-com when a single 30-something woman realises she's all alone. You should have got either a man-pal or a gal-pal to have come over, and it could have been like a fun bonding exercise. I tell you what, I did find myself on Hinge immediately afterwards, because I just thought this cannot happen next year. That's not as sad as if you had gone on to TaskRabbit and paid whatever it is, £98 for someone to come and help you put your absolutely hideous ornaments on your tree. I really need to get you some more. I think it's fine that you've got like sort of Rod Stewart and um, Camilla Parker Bowles. Camilla Parker Bowles on there. But you just don't really have much else. I've got a mini Tabasco. I've got a mini lobster. I think we need some baubles. Big gherkin. Baubles? (laughs) It was an absolute nightmare. Who did yours? Did Ollie do it by himself? What, put it up? Yeah. Mine's smaller than yours. Mine We're fell over. Little. Mine fell over too many times. At one point, it fell over onto my own head. <laughs> it just went completely lopsided, so it was just lying on top of me. Well, speaking of romance, divorce and heterosexual couples has fallen to its lowest record for half a century. I think that's extraordinarily good news. It's apparently due to processing application errors. Oh. <laughs> that's a very British reason. <laughs> so romance is still dead. I've got an early Christmas treat for you, Panda, as a logophile. What's a logophile? Someone who loves words. God, I didn't know that. I've got a tasty linguistic morsel. Some idioms from around the world. In Norway, a hippo is called a river horse. In Germany, the word for tortoise translates as a shield toad. A hamster in Albania, this is my favourite, is the observer. (laughs) In Corsica... An alligator is a flying alien. I think that might be my favourite. There's something so mysterious about the observer, like Poirot or something. Oh, I love those. Thank you. Can you write in if you know any more animal idioms for us? Doll will add them to her polls. Do you know what? I remember... leather-bound book, the doll poll. (laughs) I remember reading this great Bill Bryson book years ago called 
mother tongue, which was about the English language and how the English language developed. And I remember reading about an idiom in it. And I've never been able to verify it. I've done so many searches. And if someone French can write in and tell me if this is correct, it would make me so happy. He wrote that there is an idiom in French, which means to be bored to death. And it translates to English as to come from Birmingham. And I'm just desperate for it to be true. If it's in a Bill Bryson book, (laughs) I can't believe I'm saying this, it must be true. Yes, I would have thought it would be. Anyway... On the subject of idioms, if some French people could write in and verify that, that would make me very to happy. To come from Birmingham, that's hilarious. I'm always quite jealous of the Japanese who have a word for absolutely everything. Yeah. Some I of think... them, though, are quite dark. They've got one for being, like, so burnt out that you die, which is karoshi. <laughs> it's what? Karoshi. How do you know that? I put it into one of my essays that I'm writing for my book. But once I found that one, I realised that they've got loads, and really depressingly, a lot of them are about, like, horrible things. <laughs> There's another French one that I remember reading about in the New York Times that you will love that is about the specific feeling that's kind of very intrinsic to French culture because French conversation, the art of French conversation, is um, shies away from small talk. So it's very, very different to the tradition of British conversation. So in France, the whole New York Times article is about how in France it's seen as really... Um, it's seen as really crass and almost impolite to talk about, you know, weather or journeys or all the stuff that British people talk about. And instead you have to talk about kind of art and culture and politics. And there's a specific French word for the feeling that you have when you leave a social situation and you think of something clever you should have said as a retort, but it's too late. That's basically how I feel when I leave this house after the high every week. I love that. What's the word? I can't remember. Oh, that's useful. Sorry, once so, again. French friend. I know we do actually have a few French listeners just purely because some of my friends who listen speak French. So hopefully maybe some of them can tell us the answer to that. That's really great. And I have to say, I'm slightly with the French on that. I... That's why I'm not great at sort of. You hate small talk, don't you? Yes, I want to know how I want to know how someone is in themselves, mm. what they've been up to, and how their family is. Mm. And then also, I'd like to talk about like books and films and stuff. But yeah, it I find it absolutely extraordinary when you have a whole meal, um, and I think this happens maybe with parents as they get older as well. But they can be forgiven because they're parents when actually all you have talked about is the weather, how you got there, and how you're going to leave. Yeah, I'm like that. No, you're not. I happily could talk about the journey from London to Devon, whether you should take the dual carriageway journey or the M4, M5. I'd I'd talk about it all the time and I would still, I could talk about it for eternity. I also have a nice warming piece of nostalgia for you, Panda. And as a good little Catholic girl, I think you very much will like this. I saw an article circulating online from kentlive.com uh, that I quite loved called kentlive.com called 10 school hymns that were absolute anthems that sounds like a vice piece <laughs> number one he's got the whole world in his hands yeah number two very interested to know if either you or CJ sang this autumn days no Kent Live reports one in peak popularity around harvest festival season. Number two on our list is instantly instantly recognisable from its So I Mustn't Forget, No I Mustn't Forget chorus, kicking off with the lines Autumn days when the grass is jewelled and the silk inside a chestnut shell. That feels far too Keatsian for me for a, for a school hymn at primary school. Don't think I know that one. Number three, Lord of the Dance. Yeah, nice. Number four, this one. 
absolutely took me back as a total banger that I'd totally forgotten about. Give me oil in my lamp. Oh. <laughs> Sing Hosanna. Yeah. Totally forgot how good that song is. Five colours of day. No. Six. <laughs> One more step along the world I go. Nice. Seven. Cauliflower's fluffy. Cauliflower's fluffy? And I do know that this is a hymn because Farley, when she worked at a primary school, used to sing it around the house around Harvest Festival time when we lived together. It's like cauliflower's fluffy, cabbage's green. Again, not very gaudy, I don't think. They don't have to be gaudy, I don't think. Shine, Jesus, shine. Lovely. All things bright and beautiful. Kumbaya, my lord. Really nice. I think they could have had Tell Out My Soul in there as well. Oh my God, Tell Out My Soul is so good. Tell Out My Soul is almost like an Adele song of a hymn. So I had that at my wedding. Oh my God, I wailed the hymns at your wedding. I think up until my wedding, if possibly afterwards, I had thought it was. Strange that I didn't question this because it's quite dark. I thought it was Tear Out My Soul. <laughs> It's so good. Still got married. <laughs> tear out my soul. Thing is, it does have a bit of an 80s power ballad vibe. So tear out my soul could really work for it, I think. But I am, I'm terrible with lyrics. So there's a Brown Bound 3000 song that you would recognise. What the hell am I doing drinking in LA? And I always thought it was what the hell am I doing singing in LA? And I, <laughs> but I have that for like every single song. Oh, I love that. I would like to issue an apology for my failure to fact-check the working cocker before talking about him on last week's episode. Have you had many messages about my error and how you were right and I was wrong? Up to my tits in them. Absolutely up to my tits. Thank you for being so chic as to not uh, get in touch with me, Dolly, about that. Um, so, Dolly, you're right. The working cocker is used as a gun dog on a straightforward shooting weekend, to quote Prince uh, Andrew. A beagle is used on a hunt. I have received... I won't say overwhelming, but let's just say overwhelming. <laughs> amount of pictures of people's working cockers. Gorgeous, thank you. And descriptions of what they do. So thank you, and let's hope that Dolly finds one of the other varieties this Christmas. I've got two new entries for Dolls, Poles, Panda. <laughs> the first is on Christmas boozing. New research has found that the office party is in decline, with over 40% of British adults preferring to celebrate at home this festive season. Diageo's study also reveals the new rules for modern hosting, with the majority of guests expecting hosts to provide vegan and gluten-free food options and a range of low or no alcohol alternatives. Crikey. Findings from the research include over 40% of British adults prefer festive celebrations at home to an office party. The traditional dinner party is also in decline, with casual get-togethers at friends' houses now more than twice as popular as a formal dinner party. Almost one in five of respondents are planning to drink less this festive season, rising to almost one in four among those aged 18 to 34. Despite the increased popularity of staying in over the festive season, more than half of British adults admit they find it hardest to keep on top of their drinking at these types of events. So people saying one in five are planning to drink less this festive season. I just think that means absolutely bubkus, doesn't it? But also planning. Exactly. I'm planning. <laughs> every every Friday I'm planning not to drink that weekend. <laughs> I do love um, socialising in the home though, so I'm with them on that. Yeah, I think, what do you think about providing vegan food? If someone is vegan, I will provide it, but I'm not going to, as a thing, provide 
a gluten-free banquet, a vegan banquet. It does feel... A regular great. banquet. Yeah. A banquet with carbs. If someone is specifically vegan or if they have celiac disease, but I, and I know this is controversial, I'm not a fan of probably 80% of Christmas food. And I just had assumed it was my lot in life, my cross to bear, that at Christmas, you know, I just wouldn't eat much at people's parties. I don't know. I sort of think a bit like, we'll just eat before or something. I think this is a slight um, indicator of our sort of shifting expectations. I won't go too much into neoliberalism and individualism. Oh, go on. No, I just think it's kind of an example of our shifting expectations that like everyone will cater, you know, just like the world will cater to you at all times rather than like... It's not the worst thing in the world to go to a Christmas party and only have one canopy and get back home hungry or to eat before. Yeah. Like we can do that, guys. Yeah. We can make it through. I agree. I think, it could be wrong, but I think there might be worse things in life. <laughs> I've got one more poll for you. It's on long distance love. And the reason I'm telling you is I think it will warm your heart as much as it warmed mine. Low cost coach operator Megabus has today revealed the true cost of long distance love as couples are spending £4,681.40 p a year trying to keep long distance love alive. Men spend an average £90.19 pence more per month than women, with the average couple living 231 miles apart. In response, Megabus has launched a sweetheart saver trial ticket for those in long distance relationships, offering free travel between two destinations for a year. The ticket is now available for 10 couples to trial with Megabus planning to roll out the ticket nationwide in 2020 if the current trial is successful. People can apply at uk.megabus.com forward slash sweetheart dash saver. Slightly away from sweethearts, there were leaked papers from 2017 this week that show that the Tories did want to sell off the NHS to America. Boris Johnson has uh, denied that they were ever on the table. Labour's manifesto is out and there is lots of good stuff in there. They want to raise minimum wage from £8.21 to £10 an hour within the next year. Uh, Tories instantly have said that they will raise it to £10.50 over the next six years. They want a net zero carbon system by 2030s. They want to build 100,000 council homes a year and to give free bus travel to the under 25s. There's lots more in the manifesto, um, as there obviously is in the Conservative one that we mentioned last week. For the most part, it is more interesting than Corbyn and his fibre optic one-man mission that seems to take up the whole of question time. <laughs> Incidentally, to give you all a heads up, the Hilo will be recording its Christmas special ahead of the general election, which means we will not be covering the results. But please go vote. I will be voting Lib Dem. And speaking of Lib Dem, Hugh Grant's been having a real-life Love Actually moment canvassing for them. If you haven't seen these pictures, please look them up because it really does look like the film. I think it looks completely insane, pictures. (laughs) I thought it was fabulous. I, I... Dolly and I had one word each. Dolly's was ridiculous and mine was fabulous. <laughs> he was supporting Chaka Amuna at the Unseat a Tory campaign yesterday and I think the pictures rather lighten the mood. My heart also goes out at this time to all the family WhatsApp groups that are a deluge of parent versus child election chat. My dad, God love him, was in a state of absolute despair that Michael Heseltine was speaking from behind a Lib Dem lectern. I am so glad that my family WhatsApp group hasn't descended into that. I'm going to have to mute the Plumpingtons, God love them. All my groups are muted. Are they? My, I basically, you know what I'm like with my phone? I've essentially muted my phone for December. Yeah, I think you've made the right choice, particularly pre-election. 
In much more serious news, on all the front pages this weekend was the devastating terror attack in London Bridge, which resulted in the death of Jack Merritt and Saskia Jones. Jack's father, who has spoken beautifully about his son, um, who was supporting a prison rehabilitation event on Friday, said that he does not want his son's death to be used as vile political propaganda which inevitably it is, as it's right before the election. I thought that piece that he wrote for The Guardian was so moving. The bit about um, Jack stomping all over it in his Doc Martens. In his Doc Martens, yeah. yeah. And just in a time of the worst trauma and tragedy that a human could face, really, your child being murdered, I think, to show so much, like, reason and love and rationality and patience and level-headedness I just think is miraculous there's such a horrible irony about the event that they were attending I know that day I know and I just think it's so important to state that Jack Merritt was a fierce believer and campaigner for fairness and compassion and how appalled he would be by his tragic death being used as a way to scaremonger or propagate hatred and racism Back to much sillier news, I would like to talk about my favourite new wellness trend from the week. Tell me. Perineum sunning. Oh, I saw you tweet about this. Now, is this about... Is this for absorption of vitamin D or is it for bleaching purposes? It's absorption. You lie on your back, totally naked. I mean, I suppose you could wear a T-shirt or some socks and shoes. With your legs spread wide apart, sunning your butthole. (laughs) The actor Josh Brolin tried it and revealed on Instagram this week... (laughs) <laughs> that his pucker hole is crazy burned okay can I ask something and I know this is going to make me sound like some fussy old lady what happened to glamour what happened to old school Hollywood glamour I don't want to know about Josh Brolin's pucker red hole? raw puckered arsehole pucker hole not puckered arsehole just pucker hole doctors naturally are warning against it the new trend went viral after Instagram health influencer Ra of Earth posted a video of three naked men lying on the grass with their legs up, exposing their backsides to the sun with the caption, good God, with the caption, in a mere 30 seconds of sunlight on your butthole, you will receive more energy from this electric node than you would in an entire day being outside with your clothes on. This is what the most a load of old bobbins. Either way, it's probably a bit cold for that right now. Also, as someone on the cusp of birth, I can't make too many jokes about my <laughs> What's in the mailbag this week, doll? Thank you for all the responses to our segment on the rise and fall of Victoria's Secret last week. Several listeners pointed out the impact that Rihanna's underwear empire has had on the modelling landscape. One listener wrote, Rihanna has shown us that there is a way to do a successful lingerie show in 2019 that's inclusive and diverse and will be watched by millions. Same with how she created a makeup brand that caters to a range of ethnicities and skin colours. You can watch a documentary about the Fenty Catwalk show on Amazon Prime. What have you been enjoying this week, doll? I really enjoyed listening to Darren Brown on Adam Buxton's podcast. Darren Brown's not someone whose work I'm hugely familiar with or someone that I've really followed, but he came across as really intelligent and thoughtful and very funny as well. He told a very funny story about polygraphs, um, which is the lie detector test. And he said he was at a party and they were all, someone there had a polygraph and they were all kind of trying out the polygraph and they hooked up Darren Brown and a woman was leaving the party and she said, bye, it was nice to meet you. And he said, it was lovely to meet you. And then it showed he was lying. 
And was it accurate? Had he not enjoyed meeting this woman? <laughs> he didn't disclose. He didn't say, but he said it was an incredibly embarrassing moment. Apparently, the woman never quite forgave the host for it. Because I always wonder how accurate those polygraphs are. I don't think they're as accurate as... as... A magic eight ball. <laughs> I don't think they're as accurate as my psychic Linda, to be totally honest. When was it? It was developed for Thatcher, wasn't it, the polygraph? Why are you asking me like I've known... Do you know what? I do know this because I think my grandfather... This is a very bold statement for someone uh, who doesn't have the facts. I think my grandfather helped, like, was a part of the team that developed polygraphs. Did you dream this? No, I can confirm this next week. My grandfather was an academic and I think that it was for Thatcher, I remember him saying. Um, (laughs) Anyway... I can confirm that bit of Alderton family history for you next week. Um, But yeah, no, he was very funny. And he also talked a lot about the ethics of his job and how they make those programmes safely. Uh, You know, those programmes where people's minds and entire selves are rendered quite vulnerable, really, and are given over to the skills and the control skills and power of Darren Brown. Um, and he also goes into how strange it is to be known for this skill set in terms of meeting new people. Apparently, people are often very wary of him and they feel like they can't really trust him or they feel like they're being observed and how that can make it quite difficult to make kind of natural connections with people. So for anyone not familiar, Darren Brown's an illusionist and uh, known as a mentalist. But I was going to say mentalist, not in the, like, I got drunk in Cavos for a week way. And a mental. And he um, is trained in hypnosis. Is everyone... Do you think there's anyone who's, like, beyond hypnosis? I, like a lot of people, feel like you could not hypnotise me. I think there are probably a lot of people who are. He talks about... He goes into all the different states that people go into with his kind of tricks of the mind. God, how interesting. I think, like, so many people with these skill sets, and actually... I'm someone who I've written about this. I do actually earnestly go see a psychic. (laughs) But I... I actually don't really believe in the supernatural, I don't think. I think that with so many of these people with these kind of astonishing uh, skills of being able to look into a person's mind, I basically think it's it's a it's a highly, highly finely tuned mind that can just read humans very well. Why do you go to a psychic if you don't believe in the supernatural? Because uh, she... It's a good question... Is that not the whole point? I've always been open to spirituality, as you well know, and the many different ways that that can manifest. But the reason I go see Linda, my darling Linda, psychic life coach, um, is she... And I only see her once a year, but she provides me with a space to endorse everything that I want in a way that's actually really unique. So when you go to a therapist and you say... Is that a good thing? It's really good for me. In my life, when I've sought help, it's often... So my first therapist, as you well know, because I talk to you about her a lot, was incredibly, um, not argumentative with me, but she was very challenging as a therapist in terms of everything I said. She would offer a kind of uh, counterpoint of view and make me be accountable for what I was saying. Whereas with a, with a psychic, they have to agree with everything you say. So if I go in and I say... I want to fall in love and have children. It's literally their job to give you permission to do that. So they say, I really see that for you. That's going to happen for you. And for me, that's a really powerful thing. I know that sounds silly, but for someone to just listen to, to what it is that I desire and say to me, you have permission to be happy, you have permission to desire this for you, because guess what? I've looked into the future and I see that it's coming. Even if I don't believe in that, 
there's something powerful about someone giving me that permission. Does that make sense? Yes, and I'm going to resist the temptation to analyse your need to see Linda for that permission because basically what you're seeking from Linda is a year-long hug. Yeah, and totally, exactly I think that, exactly that. You are that. one of uh, well, there is. I, I mean, it's a it's a known thing that millennial women are moving much more towards uh, heterodoxy, where which is which means you kind of compile your own uh, spirituality because more than half of millennial women now are agnostic mm. which is the highest by it's gone up from like 30 percent in the 80s how fascinating so you are very much a reflection of a woman that is looking for something to not to put it too darkly but to fill a certain void totally you need to totally. go to linda to be told that you are allowed these things i bet i'm cheaper than linda come over <laughs> let's talk i've got some playing cards and i will give you permission to do anything you fancy. Anything you want. It's on me. We can play a game of whist. <laughs> whist. <laughs> anyway, back to Darren. Um, the clip that I'd like to insert is him talking about death and why he thinks humans fear death. And as someone who has struggled since they were very, very, very little with death anxiety, I'm always interested to me hear... Too. Oh, my God, Panda. Oof. What his thoughts are on why he thinks humans are so afraid of the end. I think is the most profound ruminations I've ever heard on what exactly it is we're so fearful of. I think what it teaches us is, because I think ultimately why death is something that is scares us and is, is deprivation. It's not that being dead is going to be horrible because we won't be there to experience yeah. that. It's not that the idea of eternal blackness and infinity should be that scary because we've already been there before we were born. That's happened, right? And it was fine then and it'll be fine in the future. Um, it's yeah, something, that's not the scary part. That's scary not the scary part. part. I, well, I, and even the... Even the bit of dying and the bit of all well, the pain, but that would only be the dying bit's only scary if it leads to death. Otherwise, it isn't dying. So, when you actually untangle what is it that we don't like, I think the answer is deprivation. That the projects we're involved in now, the people we'd like to see grow up, that are just going to end. The project just being ourselves and our opinions and our. Uh, that thing that is unique to us, the view of the world, would just, get, it'll just mean nothing. It'll mean nothing. It'll just be gone. That's the bit I think that is at the heart of why it's uh, why it's scary. So that does teach us to be a little less attached to our projects, a little less attached to what you know what is yet to come. I love discovering a poem this week called "For Desire" by Kim Adonizio. I've talked about her poetry on the show before because she wrote a poem called For the Woman Crying Uncontrollably in the Stool Next Door, which if you haven't read, you must. It's a beautiful ode to sisterhood and one of me and Pandora's faves. This poem, on the other hand, is an ode to life and it describes a sort of hunger for life and is told from the perspective of a woman with a great appetite for life, who wants to consume it all, which I very much identify <laughs> with. <laughs> Give me the strongest cheese, the one that stinks best, and I want the good wine, the swirling crystal surrendering the bruised scent of blackberries, or cherries, the rich spurt in the back of the throat, the holding it there before swallowing. Give me the lover who yanks open the door of his house and presses me to the wall in the dim hallway and keeps me there until I'm drenched and shaking, whose kisses arrive by the boatload and begin their delicious diaspora through the cities and small towns of my body. To hell with the saints, with martyrs of my childhood, meant to instruct me in the power of endurance and faith. To hell with the next world and its pallid angels, swooning and sighing like Victorian girls. I want this world. I want to walk into the ocean and feel it trying to drag me along, like I'm nothing but a broken bit of scratch glass, and I want to resist it. I want to go staggering and flailing my way through the bars and backrooms, 
through the gleaming hotels and weedy lots of abandoned sunflowers and the parks where the dogs are let off their leashes in spite of the signs, where they sniff each other and roll together in the grass. I want to lie down somewhere and suffer for love until it nearly kills me, and then I want to get up again and put on that little black dress and wait for you, yes you, to come over here and get down on your knees and tell me just how fucking good I look. Lovely. Beautiful, isn't it? What have you been enjoying, Panda? I started watching Bikram Yogi Guru Predator on Netflix, which I know a lot of people have been watching, including DJ CJ. It's about how Bikram Chowdhury built his Bikram Yoga empire in the US, starting in 1972 when he arrived from India and started treating Elvis, George Harrison and President Nixon, who supposedly gave him a green card and the accusations of sexual abuse against him. He's basically like the Weinstein of yoga. So I haven't finished it yet, full disclosure. But the thing that's very interesting about this documentary is there's so much archive footage from his sessions, particularly those in the early noughties, at a time when America was just mad for these new health trends. I think we think wellness is quite a new thing. But there was this new segment in 2005... Um, that very much summarised why Bikram Yoga was doing so insanely well. And he would teach these classes of like 600 people whilst wearing these tiny pants and a Rolex, which I know is DJ CJ's favourite bit. But the sessions are seriously hardcore and it is like a bit of a cult. He pushes people incredibly hard. You're not allowed to leave the session to pee. I used to do it. I remember. You still do hot yoga, don't you? So I must make this very clear because I'm very evangelical about hot yoga and I do it a lot hot yoga is very different to Bikram yeah. yoga um, it's a different set of postures it's a different philosophy most crucially the, there's not a corrupt man that's benefiting and yielding money from people practicing it um, there's extreme contortion in Bikram yoga but I got to a point with Bikram yoga where this is just me personally beyond me looking at the ethical reasons why I wouldn't want to be practicing this man's yoga that he kind of preached it was so intense it's 90 minutes which is incredibly long hot yoga is only an hour um and they're really really militant uh, about not leaving the room he had quite a lot of strange theories about he said on a new segment that he slept 30 hours in one month and that he didn't eat um i found the beginning of this a bit slow there's about 30 minutes just interviewing these Shishi former female yoga instructors about why they loved Bikram and I understand it's like to build the momentum of you know what he had created and how these women felt not necessarily beholden to him but certainly to his practice I think I'm at the point now where the turn is coming Mm. and where he has started to um, become sexually inappropriate haven't got to um, I haven't got much further than that yet but where people start to defend and validate his behaviour And that is, I think, what's most interesting when we Mm. talk about these stories now is not that it happened, but um, how it happened and Mm. how it was maintained. He fled the US in 2016, having been formally charged and due to pay millions, and he hasn't paid the settlement. I do remember a lot of those classes that I would do. He was this slightly deified figure. There was one class I went to where there was literally a framed picture of him at the front of the class, and they would talk about him extensively at the beginning and why he was you know a prophet that's the sort of the culty aspect though I think. yeah i mean exactly i mean looking back on it i should that now i think would make me feel much more uncomfortable but it's funny isn't it that I, I think my eyes are just so much more open to that kind of thing now whereas before i just didn't really question it 
Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting documentary, and I know that a ton of people are watching it. And it really reminded me of Wild Wild Country, where this sort of guru amassed, you know, thousands of followers and built this whole village and school and everything in America. Is there's, you know, there's often with these, whether it's exercise or wellness or religion, and arguably there's a kind of religious aspect to wellness anyway, because there is a sort of deification and there's a ritual and there's a promise at mm. the end of it and all of that. There is, um, you know, that charismatic leader, and it is pretty much always, I think, a man, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, always. And so then there's the the um, capacity for abuse there, which is interesting. I read totally unintentionally back to back. Well, I'm still reading the first one. Two books about marital domestic abuse. So I knew that one of them was about. Um, domestic abuse in a couple I didn't know that the other was so it was a complete coincidence and it was really interesting reading them back to back because they are both very um, poetic and they both play with form quite a lot the first one that I'm still reading is The Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado and the second one is When I Hit You by Mina Kandasami that I gobbled over the course of one night as I'm not sleeping much at the moment and I'm surprised I missed it last year it was shortlisted for the Women's Fiction Prize in 2018 and I um came across it because I was reading an interview with her for her new book. I can't remember what that's called and I haven't read that yet. And I was reading an interview where she was talking about this um, talking about this book. So I bought it immediately. And what's, what's so interesting is, as I said, that both of them are very poetic, intentionally so. Mina Kandasami is a poet. And the way that the story is told is clearly very important to them. Um, but the subject matter is obviously very traumatic and weighty. And something Mina Kandasami says is that she feels frustrated when people focus just on the subject matter rather than the fact of her writing the book and how she wrote the book. And she says she also feels frustrated when people call her book a memoir. As she says, in a memoir, this marriage would just be a footnote in my life. Mm. Um, And she thinks, you know, when people say, oh, it's a tremendous success because it's a story about women. And she doesn't obviously minimise the fact that it is a telling of her trauma, but I think she has found it frustrated in in the way that Roxane Gay has said before that sometimes when women write about really traumatic or powerful things that's almost seen as the sole reason to speak about the book rather than the way they wrote it which is also really important to them as writers so The Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado uh, tracks her relationship with her girlfriend from when they first meet as she becomes gradually more Um, abusive it's told in tiny vignettes normally one page or even half a page each and the dream house is a metaphor for lots of different things but mostly Carmen's body part of what makes the dream house so original and indeed what Carmen herself has is that we don't tell stories about domestic abuse between we don't tell many stories about domestic abuse in same-sex relationships I feel like I've seen more stories of domestic abuse between two men actually that reminds me of A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara um but I have never read a book, I don't think, about no, I haven't. abuse between two women. And Carmen didn't really know it was happening herself. So you really, you experience it really with her um, that she gradually realises uh, that this dynamic, you know, has has really shifted since when she met this woman. And it's written like a sort of fairy tale her debut which was kind of very acclaimed in literary circles I have no idea if it did well commercially but her debut her body and other parts was also quite like this it's this sort of fairy tale which gets gradually darker quite psychological and sexual it's a really interesting book 
And the Meena Kandasamy's book just blew me away. It's set in Mangalore in India. And Meena, a poet and writer in her late 20s, has married an older communist professor who appears to hold all the same values as her. Over the course of their four-month marriage, he becomes... I'm not giving anything away here. She tells it all in the um, introduction. Over the course of their four-month marriage, he becomes physically and verbally abusive, using his political... And this is the thing I found most interesting. Using his political values to debase her and remove her freedoms. So he blames all of her shortcomings on her being a spoilt middle-class feminist. So there's always a reason for him to justify why he needs to do something to her or why she can't see what he's doing as a good thing. And that's because she doesn't hold his communist values. It's really uh, original is the only word I can think. And he does this bit by bit in a way that I think you would find utterly devastating reading. I mean, anyone would, but I think um, because you're such a uh, communicator um, in lots of different forms, Dolly, I think this would really get you reading this. But he does it bit by bit. He first asks for her email password and then he gets her to delete every email she's ever sent or received. So that's 25,600 emails from her Gmail. So her whole email history is wiped out. Then he gets her to shut down her Facebook and then he spends so long getting her a new SIM card that she doesn't have a phone. Um, And then he doesn't allow her to write. She has to stay as a housewife. So she writes all day because she's desperate to write and then she deletes it all from her laptop before he comes home. Fucking hell. And I found the psychological abuse as devastating to read as the physical. Um, it's You can't help but ache for this woman who is... Um, she is so passionate and impassioned and so kind of browbeaten, I suppose, by his politics and one of the most shocking things for a western reader certainly is that she isn't encouraged to leave him by the people she tells which i think is only her parents all her friends um she just sort of pretends that she's moved somewhere new with her new husband and she's very busy working Mm. but her parents encourage her not to leave him they say you know this is this is for your own good he's disciplining you for your own good and it will bring shame on your father if you leave and there's obviously a massive historical problem with the way that women are treated in marriage in india uh mina includes this shocking statistic in her book that a bride is burnt alive in india every 90 minutes it's unreal I wanted to read what I thought was a... It's not a bit about abuse. I wanted to read what I thought was a brilliant bit where she's talking to her mother about clothes, which her husband, unsurprisingly, has a strong opinion on. I knew how much my husband controlled my clothes, something I made the mistake of reporting to my mother. Love is in the little things, she said on the phone. Wear what pleases him. Don't stand your ground or sweat yourself on the small stuff. Men are insecure about beauty. They want to hide it in you, and then they will take their crippled minds to town, and I fuck every girl they see. I'm sorry, mother dear, but I disagree. Clothes shouldn't be a battleground. They shouldn't be about control and mortification. To me, they are about the way men undress themselves, always the joy of watching a lover's awkwardness when he hurriedly removes his shirt, first the left sleeve, and then the rest of it pulled up from the neck. It is the easy way women dress and undress in front of each other. Our clothes are made for the hands of our friends. The zip that runs along the length of the dress, the bra hook, the sari pleats at the back, as if we become complete only when we take part in dressing each other. From me, you will only hear about clothes, as things that we wanted to shed, clothes that remind us of the time that we were lovers. She's got just an incredible turn of phrase. Yeah, beautifully written. Can't wait to read her new book, so I cannot recommend that enough. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our guest today is the author and journalist, Bella Mackey. Her first book, Jog On, How Running Saved My Life, came out last year. And her new book, The Jog On Journal, A Practical Guide to Getting Out and Running, came out a few weeks ago. The books are not fitness books as much as they are an encouragement to embrace exercise in even its smallest form to help ease mental illness, or as Bella rather poetically puts it, running away to come back. Bella, welcome to the Hilo. Thank you so much. How exciting. The Jog On series, if you will, <laughs> two counts as a series, came around after you wrote a piece about how running really helped you in the aftermath of your divorce as your lifelong battle with anxiety threatened to consume you. We talk a lot about mental health and anxiety at the moment it's a real cultural conversation but what do you think we're getting wrong and what did you want to myth bust for want of a better word in your book uh i'm so moany that i think we're getting everything wrong all the time about mental health (laughs) um it's like one of my biggest tussles is kind of trying to be positive about it and also thinking that we're doing everything terribly and then when i did start writing it i thought i have to be really honest because everything that i'd ever read about mental health the only stuff that actually helps you as a person reassure you or make you feel like you're not alone or myth bust is stuff that's kind of intensely honest uh so yeah the honesty thing is really important and then the stuff that we're getting wrong um i am really worried about the kind of online you know it's good to talk it's okay not to be okay um like the platitude inspirational quote you know here's a whole handhold or a picture of a rose with a kind of you know a vague thing about how someone's not feeling that great uh and I'm really glad that we're all talking about mental health and anxiety a lot but I think there is a huge difference between the type of anxiety that I experienced for sort of a decade and sometimes when I see someone sort of saying I feel a bit anxious today I'm a bit worried and it's fine you know all of those things are on a spectrum there's no top trumps going on but if I'd seen posts like that when I was feeling, you know, really desperately ill in my 20s, I would have felt despairing. I would have thought, oh, I'm I'm, I'm insane because that person has anxiety, so I must have something worse. So I'm a bit worried about the sort of the way social media... Levelling of it all. Yeah, exactly. Levelling of it all. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. And that's, that is a dangerous conflation when it's making people feel like they can't self-soothe or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, the idea of kind of self-care and mental health have been slightly, you know, joined together, I think, by social media especially. And, yeah, this idea that, you know, have a hot bath, go for a nice walk, you know. And obviously I'm saying, you know, go for a run, so I'm slightly guilty of that as well. But I sort of think, you know, you can go for a run and have a hot bath, but first you have to go and see your GP and you have to, you know, assess the idea of medication and, you know, therapy would be a really good step. And then the kind of more holistic things can happen, but... I mean, it's partly because, you know, the help is not out there. So, you know, if you do go to the GP and they say there's an 18 month waiting list for therapy and you're sort of a bit worried about taking drugs, then, of course, you know, you're going to cast around looking for for other ways, which I guess is why Jog On has been a success. But but that doesn't mean that those are the only or primary things that we should be talking about. And and that worries me a bit. When you were saying um, and that's why you think Jog On's been a success, do you think it's because and presumably you've probably heard from so many of these women that lots of women were feeling like I need to do um 
I need that you know I need to do something that's kind of within my power to help me feel better and that your book gave them a kind of option of what that could be something like jogging which you wouldn't think about because we tend to separate people into kind of exercisey people mm. or non-exercisey people and they might have done those things like thought about going to a GP but hadn't actually thought about incorporating a kind of because it's more about finding space for yourself like when I hear you talk all right about running it's not necessarily like the running it's the literally just the kind of rudimentary aspect of putting like one foot in front of the other clearing your mind like being on your own, your time, like... Yeah, it's about getting away from everything, definitely. It really is that running away thing so that you get to come back. And yeah, for me, it's definitely not about the running. Like, I've never run a race. I'm terrible at it. I, I hate it. Like, do you I run like... Is it Phoebe in Friends? I don't run like Phoebe, but I think I probably run like your mum would run. Do you know what I mean? Like, quite slow, looks really pained, like, it's sort of stopping at, at trees and kind of being like... <sighs> So I'm a bit like that, and I've never got any faster. Um, and like, I did it this morning, and I just hated it every minute of it. I was like, how do I talk about running? I hate it. But it's not the running, you know? It's not the kind of, like, a sane Bolt-type style of it. It's, yeah, it's all of those things. Getting away, being on your own, the endorphins you get at the end, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that mainly what people said to me about the book when when they read it, and when, you know, because you never know what the reaction to your book's going to be. I mean, you know, you think it's one thing and then and then it turns out it's something else. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't even really about the running, although there are so many people that get in touch and they're like, I've run a marathon now, and I'm like, you are now better than me because of the book. But mainly it was people saying, I've had intrusive thoughts since I was seven years old and I had no idea what they were called until I read the book. Or I've had OCD, you know, ticks my whole life, or things like that, and then saying, and now I've gone to the doctor. And that was the most incredible thing was that there is so little... I mean, obviously, there are much more, there are many more books about mental health out there now. But, you know, when in my 20s, there were no books, like personal experience type books. So I think it really helps people to, really, like, to read that and then go, oh, I'm not on my own, I'm not weird. It was a real surprise to me to realise how many people have been living with those things without telling anyone for, like, decades. Because mm. I think I lasted about three months before I said to my mum, like, I think I'm going mental. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's mad to me that people are sort of that that strong and and scared, effectively. I think you do just think it's part of your um, personality, though, in that there's a, a few of the things that I've heard you talk about have really resonated with me personally, like the um, eating biscuits in the night or <laughs> baking in the night, but also the when you were saying about the ticks, about how... You know, it's amazing that until people read about it, they didn't realise it was an anxious thing. Like, I always just thought I was a really compulsive person. You know, mm. when I was little, I had a weird thing where I had to uh, switch the light on and off a certain amount of times. Yeah. And I always had to... I'd tell myself not to do something and I'd have to do it. All these things that I just thought were part of just being kind of a highly strung, oversensitive, quite exhausting person. You know, all these things yeah, that I was but I I think to apologise for. Your parents and my parents wouldn't have had the language for that. So in my parents used to call Definitely me like not. a warrior. Yeah. You know, yeah. Tell us a bit I was a worry bean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's how you grow up thinking about yourself and you don't realise that actually, like you don't have to give yourself the label of like OCD, but like those are OCD behaviours. Children often get them if they're sort of feeling like they're out of control of a situation. You can obviously, you know, move on from that as an adult. But yeah, those things would have been completely OCD behaviours, but you, as age seven or whatever, would have had no idea and just thought, I'm, you know, I'm a bit weird, you know. And But that's really scary, isn't it? Because, you know, you sort of, if you if you carry on those behaviours into adulthood and you don't tell anyone, you know, you think you're sort of, you think it's just you and that you have these horrible burdens you have to deal with. And that's incredibly isolating. I think there are a lot of women who feel like exercise isn't for them or that it doesn't belong to them. And I think a lot of women feel like they're not clued up enough about it or they're the wrong shape for it or they can't afford the right kit. 
um, or they don't know enough about it or or that they've got the wrong, they won't be able to build stamina for it. And I'm sure that there are lots of women listening to us right now who feel like it's something they'd love to try, but it's in a kind of exclusive elitist club that they're not going to be welcome to join and they feel too self-conscious about giving it a go. Speaking directly to those women, what would you say to them? Um, I would say that I was exactly that person um, until I was 30. I'd never done any exercise at all since I left school and not even really at school. I used to, our, our, our lessons at school in sixth form were go for a walk around the park and that just for me meant go to the like the big bush area and smoke fags with boys. So, <laughs> like that to me was exercise. Um, and I thought people that did exercise were weird and sort of creepy. And I did. I just thought it was a bit weird. And I used to like drive to the corner shop and stuff. So I was that person who was worried that people would laugh at me, who was worried that I wasn't the right size or they didn't have the right clothes or that I had to be good at it straight away. Or I think the other misconception, and I've written about all this in the journal because all of these misconceptions were the things that people got in touch with me about to say, I would like to run, but I'm scared. But I think the other one is um, that I have to do it to a certain level. I have to run a race or, I, you know, if I don't if I do not do an under under six minute mile or whatever it is you know then I've, I've failed it has to be a goal exactly and um and I sort of I, I sort of spend my life now trying to say to people like you could do 15 minutes at the slowest pace possible and if that's what works for you then you're a runner you know that's all it is and you know actually when you do start doing it you realize that no one is looking at you because everyone is a narcissist and they're all on their phones they're all thinking about themselves and when I look at runners or when I used to look at runners when I was when I thought they were creepy I also was quite impressed you know I sort of would think I think you're creepy but you know I wish I sort of wish I could you know do that you look quite fit and like full of life and I'm sort of sitting here you know chain smoking in my car so I think most people are either looking at you with a mix of admiration or they're not looking at you because they're on their phones so all of these things that you worry about at first they all fall away once you've been doing it for like a week basically um and and I think especially for women you know maybe it is better in schools now maybe girls are sort of taught you know that that exercise is not just you know something that you do as a kind of punishment every Wednesday but it's you know it's it's going to be great for stress and sleep and mood and all those things but that's not how I was taught how to exercise I don't know about you no definitely not it was just something to endure right Mm. like a sort of embarrassing cold thing where you'd be picked last and you know why on earth would you want to do that to to endure and to perform I think and to achieve rather than to experience yeah or to understand what the benefit might be after the lesson you know so it's not just you'll be the best person at, you know, netball or whatever it is girls exactly. are they're supposed to do. Yeah. But, you know, what might you get out of it the next day and what might that do for your body confidence or for your, you know, energy levels? So I think the way we look at exercise, especially, you know, again, Instagrammy, it's very white, it's very thin, it's very abs. And, you know, I don't run like that. And, and I think lots of women are put off by that. They think, I don't look like that. I, you know, what? how do I get there? And, and actually... That's not what we should be saying exercise is for. You know, exercise should primarily be sort of for physical fitness and mental fitness. It shouldn't be for kind of, you know, getting the best bum. I mean, your books are about running, but then they're also sort of not in that these are not wellness books. From what I gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're still a big proponent of a glass of wine and a fag. I fucking hate wellness. (laughs) What do you think about um, wellness and this idea that being extremely healthy and disciplined can save women were you cautious when you were writing your book that you didn't want it to be that it felt both of them feel particularly the jog on journal where you um get to fill in 
you know you get to kind of feedback on what you're saying it feels really non-judgmental in the way it encourages us to take baby steps towards getting out and clearing your minds it's not about smashing your personal best or being a lean mean fighting machine but when you were writing did you have any fear of being like I really hope that people don't think I'm endorsing some idea about kind of physical perfection or about health being the you know vanguard to happiness <laughs> my main worry is always that I don't want anyone to think that running is going to cure you of mental health problems because it's not you know and I really I do not want to be a snake or you know I don't want to goop it and yeah. say like you know do this and you'll be fine because you won't be and I'm not you know it's a daily thing and mental health is not something that you know goes away it's just like a snakes and ladders thing um so that was my main worry and then yeah I never wanted to be unrealistic about kind of you know do this and you know you'll be fast and energetic and speedy and wonderful and and so there are things in there like I say you know I've sometimes got a bit over addicted to it you know I've sometimes kind of done it too much I've got obsessive about it or you know that it hasn't been able to help me in this side of life or whatever whatever but the whole thing I think people know that I like a glass of wine that I sometimes have a cigarette um <laughs> that you know I have ice cream after every run and that I'm generally really unhealthy um I really am like I'm not in any way a wellness proponent um and I think wellness is um like very dodgy at the best of times do you see the um the doctor that always critiques Goop. Um, yeah, Jen Gunter. Yeah, she's amazing. She tweeted this week saying, I think that wellness is more dangerous than Big Pharma in some ways. Interesting. The wellness industry. Yeah. You know, because this idea that, you know, I guess it's sort of tied in a bit to like anti-vaxxers and, you know, it's sort of mushrooms, totally. doesn't it? And and so, yeah, wellness, I, I think, is dangerous and scary. And in but five years, if you see me coming out with like, you know, a protein ball, then you'll know that I've, you know done a 180 and become a monster but at the moment I think it's really I think it's really scary I think particularly for women as well because there's a historic kind of myth perpetuated that um like cleanliness and purifying ourselves and being as sort of disciplined as possible will make you a better woman and I think Jen Gunch and a couple of other people have written about with Goop is this idea that like looking perfect on the outside means you're perfect on the inside it's kind of mm. trying to level up all the time mm. whereas you you like the inside and the outside are completely different things. It's a bit know. like the Gia Tolentino um, Always Be Optimising chapter. It's a great essay wrote, yeah. in Trick Mirror. Uh, yeah, about this idea that, you know, you kind of put on your amazing, you know, spandex pants and you go and do a class and, you know, all of that stuff and how that... So a really interesting name for that. She uh, cites this historian, I think she's called Deirdre Clements, it's called Enclothed Cognition. So the idea that, like, you dress to be the person you want people to see you as. So that's why athleisure's been so popular. You know how, like, loads of they tend to be sort of mum, like yummy mummies, don't they? Mm. Wear your like uh, sweaty Betty clothes to look like you are. You're perpetuating this idea of womanhood, yeah. which I think is really interesting. But it's so fascinating this idea of like where does it end? You know, so I think that's like with orthorexia. You know, when you sort of when you're obsessed with the healthiest lifestyle you can have. You know, I think uh, especially in a, like a capitalist society, you know, where does it end? You know, you have the gym membership, you get up at five, you do a Barry's boot clamp or whatever it is that you do boot clamp boot clamp um that's how that's how often I've been to Barry's my boot sister clamp. goes to that so yeah but like terrifying yeah, it's fine but you know terrifying um works for some people by the way really works for her I don't want to ever diss like what exercise no 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 do. it's more like you know it's it's, I it's where it does it end you know yeah. so you do that yeah then you eat something for lunch that is like not identifiably you know 
it's not pasta, let's put it that way. And then, you know, you drink like a whatever it is and you have a crystal and, you know, wellness will suck you up and, and, and sort of dominate you to the point where I think you start feeling like if you miss one of those things or you have an ice cream, do you feel like you're not living your best life? You're not yeah. being as good as you can be. It's just another so, distraction as well, I think. Yeah. It's all like diversions away from, I think this is what's really great about how singular the job and journal is, is it's like you're not talking about 50 different things at once. You're talking about one thing mm that you can do as much or as little as you want and that's not going to save your life but might help you feel a little bit better. And I think that is the antithesis of here are 25 things that you yeah. have to keep all but in the air do. every yeah, single yeah. day. And then that becomes a new way for women to feel like they failed. Like they go into wellness looking for an answer and then they often come out feeling even worse. I think that's the scary bit. And as you say, I think the endlessness of this kind of health optimization is gendered in a way that it's just it's totally. not for men and this is the thing that I parrot on about over and over again but as someone who's really struggled in the past with obsessive eating and exercise I remember behaving in a way like it was so limitless what I could do and what I could spend money on and how I could deprive myself it was like I was preparing for battle yeah but it was like I was a professional like the way mm. I looked was a professional full-time yeah, yeah. and like that kind of when you open I think I'm someone who is quite health conscious and it is something that I think does probably play into like a more healthier way of harnessing past obsessive behaviors Mm. that I've had but I think I do feel like I've got a sense of moderation with it but if I didn't it is like these women that feel like they have to do all that as well as be good at work a good you know a good mother a good friend um, a good political activist and it just feels like it, it's so all-consuming mm. in a way that for most men, you know, to be healthy and well put together and attractive, it's literally just like brushing your teeth and wearing a jumper. I know, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of a man that I know in my life who's like as regular about exercise as I am and even even me. Like, mm. And I can't, I genuinely can't think. My husband, you know, goes for a run when he feels like it eats cheese when he feels like it, sort of just does whatever he wants and sort yeah. of comes out looking great and, you know, has the ideal sort of balanced life. Yeah. But that's just not the same for women, especially as we get a bit older, I think. Because I think there is this idea that we should all be striving Definitely. in the same way for the same things. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about something you've written about before, which I think is still such a stigma for women, but getting married and divorced before the age of 30. And a lot of this journey that you had with your mental health was um, coming out of something that made you feel a uh, sort of sense of shame and a sense of failure. And I know the term self-partnering is terrible, but I thought Emma Watson raised a really good point about how society looks at you a certain way if you're you know, single at the age of 30. Um, I wanted to ask you if you'd read an extract from a lovely piece you wrote for British Vogue as it would be nicer in your voice. It definitely wouldn't be, but yeah. <laughs> At 28, I met someone who scooped me up and rushed me towards a future. Within three months, we were living together and celebrating our engagement. I was stunned that I'd cracked it without ever really considering what it was. I gave little care as to whether this was the relationship I wanted or if I was merely seeking any relationship. The wedding came and went as did the marriage. In less than a year, we were done. I'd spectacularly tanked a marriage before I'd even turned 30. I'd ignored the problems in our relationship, clung on with my fingertips, and still it was all for nothing. I felt I'd failed at the one thing I'd aimed for. The fear that I'd be left on some proverbial dusty shelf had merely been put on hold. 
It means so much to me, that piece. We talked about it on the high-low. As a woman who was, when I read it, heading into her 30s single and feeling this, like, slightly unavoidable, omnipresent biological panic that, like, no matter how much you try and keep out, every single woman I know in their 30s feels the, the like, muffled scream of it slightly. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> It's such it's such a reassuring and powerful piece, and it's one that I send single women all the time. Thank you so much for writing it and being so honest in it. That's so nice. Um, I know I can't remember why I originally, you know, why I came up with the idea or why I decided that I wanted to write it, but I think it was probably that I felt really angry with myself that in my twenties that I'd I'd been rushing towards this thing like I have to get a husband, I have to, you know, so stupid. Like why was I so stupid, and why was my conditioning like that? You know, it's not. It didn't come from my parents or anything because like that. Because you say like your mum uh, got married when she was thirty-seven, yeah. and she had never the way she'd led her life and the way she'd raised you had never put. And, and I think this is different for a lot of women. I think a lot of women feel like they need to get married and they need to have children um, because maybe of the way they've been raised. But you say, I wasn't even raised no, like that. No, I wasn't. Like Linz, my mum had five proposals before my dad and she was in no hurry. Five? That's yes, amazing. Five, five. One of my sister's friends has had nine and she is my hero. Oh my God, <laughs> she's she amazing. Said, I think she's just said yes to number 10. Oh, great. Oh, you'd have to say yes to 10. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to. Or wait till 20, you know, either way. Yeah, those vows will write themselves. Yeah, then it's beautiful. It's like if me and Greg doesn't, if we don't work out that and I'm just going to keep marrying until I get to Elizabeth Taylor level. Yes. Because you don't want two. You want like, seven. Go seven. If you, you, know, you don't want two. If you're going to have two, you have to have seven. So Yeah, we're bringing up Elizabeth Taylor in a minute, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I was furious. You know what? I think actually, because my mum was not like that, I think it's because I grew up in a very traditional, I went to a traditional school and I grew up in, you know, like you, I grew up in an area of London, which is kind of quite small C conservative conventional so I sort of yeah I went through my 20s just like I need to get married I need to do this and I I wasn't concentrating on my career because I was unhappy and anxious and so I wasn't I was just fucking about wasting my life and so when I hit sort of I can't remember how old I was when I wrote the piece, 32 or Yeah, early 30s, yeah. And I think it was because I'd had three years of being single and being happier than I'd ever been in my 20s, and I was just so fucked off with myself that I'd wasted so much time. But also that this idea that, you know, I now, when people say that they're getting engaged and they're under 30, I look at them like an old witch might look at, you know, like someone that turns up at their door. I'm like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't get married before 30. You shouldn't even meet someone. You should just shag everyone for 10 years and then... (laughs) And then, then it's okay. But if 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 someone tells me they're they're settling down before thirty, I I cannot hide my my rage and anger. I'm like, you don't know who you are in your twenties. Your twenties are a time of you know experimentation, and you should have fun with it. Don't waste it. So basically, you should just have constant sex until you're thirty, and then you're allowed <laughs> to go and meet people. That's kind of what David Sedaris says. And I've let down the side. It's a theory I adhere to, Bella. <laughs> How old were you when you met your husband? I think I got married when I was 28. Oh, I see. I think. You'd have got the look from me. I'd you're you're like, a child it. bride. You were <laughs> a child, child bride. You were. But what I will say is I didn't have any relationship. My longest relationship was nine months until I met him aged 25 or 24. Oh, God, you met him even younger. I thought you were going to say you met him, you got married a month later. I was like 28. That's but I was single when all my friends were not... I was always the single person. I want to ask you about remarrying 
Um, I loved your piece for British Vogue that you wrote about what to wear for your second wedding. The dress wedding. that um, the Daily Mail commenters all thought was the worst dress that they'd ever seen. No, it was That gorgeous. means it's a success. I know. It was gorgeous. And you said in the piece that yellow silk was good enough for Elizabeth Taylor when she remarried Richard Burton. So for your second wedding. In the best dress ever, that it's dress. It's gorgeous, that dress. Um, but I wanted to ask you about what it's like to fall in love again and remarry, having been through such kind of heartache. I've been single for quite a long time, as I mentioned. Going into your 30s and kind of being hopeful and looking for love, it does take a lot of courage and a lot of energy and a lot of patience and a lot of goodwill and a lot of faith in people. And I get a lot of messages from young women, and I'm sure there are lots of young women listening now that that all ask the same question, for which I have no answer really, which is, after all this trauma and heartache, how do I keep picking myself back up? And I just think, it would be lovely to hear your insights on that as someone who, you know, I can't imagine how stressful a divorce must be before you're 30 mm. and what it felt like to summon the faith to do that again. I mean, yeah, again, like you say, you have, you have no answer to that. I have no good answer to that. I think I was lucky in that I found running at the same, literally the same moment that my, my relationship was breaking down. Obviously they were connected, but I didn't realise how much independence I would gain from that. And before that, you know, I was literally at a point where I was so anxious that I couldn't go out, you know, down the street on my own. So my husband leaving was, you know, really terrifying. Um, and then and then I found this thing running. So, you know, then I was suddenly like, you know, traversing the city and, and forest gumping it, you know, for hours. And and I would be on my own all the time. And, and for the first time in my life, that wasn't scary to me. And I, I actually enjoyed it. So for me, I think the confidence came back for me because of that, because I felt like I was doing something independent I think for women that's so important to do things that make you feel independent whatever that is you know it could be physical it could be something else but you know I think it's so important for us to find those things um that make us feel like we're so capable and 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 I hate the word strong but you know what I mean um so that was kind of my best thing that I think I got in the sort of in the in the wake of of trauma and, and panic about the divorce um that and the fact that I don't know, my, obviously I had really nice friends and family, so that was lovely. And and also I just felt like I had a reset. I was like, do you know what? I can't do that again. I can't settle for someone that isn't right. And yeah. I, can't, I can't fuck it up like that again. So I might as well just see what is out there and enjoy myself. And I felt hot. Like, I felt attractive and, and good. And I know that's shallow, but I genuinely felt, because I was... I was coming out of this kind of anxiety thing and I was I was feeling independent. I felt great about myself, weirdly, even though I was kind of very embarrassed about the divorce thing. I just made it into a joke. I was like, oh, you know, I got divorced, I tanked it. One guy reacted really badly to that um, and was a fucking dick about it. Um, but everyone else kind of, you know, it was funny. It was like a talking point or whatever. But... Yeah. Probably gave you some glamour. I have to say, I always love a young divorcee. I think it's oh, very... Oh, I now Quite love chic. a young divorcee. I think it's so chic. It's like along with... Um, She's not afraid of strife. Yeah, it's along with um, an elegant woman whose husband's died in slightly weird circumstances. Yeah, like, on a jet ski. Yeah, I'm very into that as well. Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> There's a woman, she's wearing sort of a lot of jewellery and you sort of, you know from other people that her husband was like, you know, yeah, exactly, fell off a jet ski and you're just like looking at her like... It's so lovely that you had a reset though and that it didn't, because obviously you hadn't, my God, this is so like chick litty, but you know, you hadn't given up on love. Yeah, because I do think it's very hard not to become cynical. And I think that's the thing that that you fight in your 30s if you're looking for love. And you proposed to your husband. I did. very cool. I did. Yeah, do you know what? I... Feminist with a capital F. 
I think there were lots of points where I did feel very cynical and there were lots of dickheads. There was one dickhead just before I met my husband who was just like an uber dickhead and I really got to the point where I thought, oh, do you know what? This isn't going to work. Yeah. You know, as in, I've tried, I've tried, I've had fun, I've I've waited out, I've been independent and this guy has just done the exact classic dickhead things that guys in my tw- early 20s were doing and I was just like, oh, you know. Argh. Then I met him and I assumed that he would also be like a huge disappointment and then it turned out he was just nice all the time and did all those grown up, hit all those grown up markers. So like on our first day, I've said this to you before, he actually, because you wrote about it, mm. he actually organised dinner mm. and I was like, what is happening? You know, no man has ever organised dinner. That should not be revolutionary. I know, it's such a low bar. It's the first piece of advice I give to single men. I'm like, don't turn up and act like the work experience placement. Be like, what do you want to do? Where yeah, where do you want to go? Oh, it's like, there's no, a the take corner. initiative. So it's so it's work so sexy because we have. Such do you know what I mean? That sort of like gormless. Like I can't think of anything less sexy. <laughs> I agree. So, but yeah, so he just kept hitting all these bars and kept. Like not being a dick and not leaving and not and not disappointing me in any way, and still doesn't because he was very nice. I was able to lean into it, like Cheryl Sandberg says, but not about that. But yeah, no, I think that's really reassuring. And something that Pandora has said to me over the years because Pandora's like seen me in so many different states of singledom, of like celebration and true despair. Something that you said to me that I hold close those words all the time is like it's just going to be difficult until it's not difficult. It's going to be difficult until you meet the right person and then it's not difficult anymore. That's amazing advice and exactly how I felt. Mm. Yeah, it Should was I put it on a cushion for you? Please do. With Long your maternity time. leave, please could you embroider that on a cushion for her? <laughs> I shall spend my entire maternity yeah. leave and probably take my entire maternity leave. <laughs> You've... Um, bit of a gear change here you've spoken a little bit about what it was like to have a stalker a man who went to prison for a year in 2016 did he go to prison in 2016 or yeah yeah, it must have been it was just when I'd met Greg so yeah I guess was that I have no idea but yes it was around then how did that experience especially as someone that had gone through what you'd gone through uh struggling with anxiety that you had how did that experience uh impact your anxiety and also the way you lived your life um, I was so angry. I was so angry. I just felt like I'd finally got my life on track and I was finally feeling, again, like I say, I use the word independence all the time. Um, and I felt really, you know, sort of bolshy and brilliant and, and, and I was starting a new job. And, and then this guy just out of the blue just turns up and, and starts stalking me. Um, and I'd never met him. I had no connection to him. He lived in Derbyshire. You know, there was no... You know, was it through, were you at The Guardian at that time? Yeah. Was it through your writing that he'd found you? I don't know. Still don't know. Because he didn't ever mention anything sort of specifically. That's strange. He's very ill. So, like, you know, his writing was incredibly um, rambly and you, you couldn't understand anything he was saying, really. And he was getting in contact with me, my mum, my dad, my sister, all through private emails. It was very strange. I, you know, I, I don't know how he was getting hold of all this information. But, um... Yeah, the first thing the police say is like, oh, you know, have you done anything with this guy that he would be stalking you? So it's all, it's quite victim blaming the way that people, still the police react to stalking. Um, and yeah, but I hadn't, you know, I didn't know anything about this person. And yet, you know, he was, he was taking photographs of, of the park near where I lived and he was coming down to London, which is, you know, a huge journey. Um, and then eventually he did turn up at my, at my house, um, which was after a couple of months of it and, you know, it not being taken very seriously. And, and, um, yeah, it changed me massively. You know, I dyed my hair red in this moment of, like, I must be in a disguise. So I dyed my hair red. I 
I had to pay 1500 quid to get new security on my flat because I lived alone so I was ground floor just terrified all the time um I would take different routes to work because you know I was scared that he would be following me and you know I would I, I told my work you know if you I, we put up posters in the in the foyer at my work saying you know if you see this person you know you have to call someone because I thought God. he's gonna kill me you know I just did you know the messages were getting madder and madder and they were saying things that were threatening about my sister um about how you know she was trying to keep us apart and and all this stuff and no one was doing anything and I was trying to keep empathy for this person who was clearly very ill yeah. and not getting treatment yeah. but equally you know he wouldn't stop and mm. and so ultimately because he wouldn't stop and and the restraining order didn't work he ended up going to jail for a year and luckily for me because normally that kind of stalker you know it's Gets very hard contact, yeah. yeah you know there are lots of women lily allen's talked about it yeah. and um emily maitlis and they have stalkers who just don't go away. You know, Emily Maitlis has had a stalker for now 20 years or something oh since God, she was at university. I, I realised that. I knew she'd have her at university. I he didn't is she in and out present. of jail constantly. And oh my God. she just is so amazing and brave to carry on doing, you know, that kind of public-facing exactly, job with that yeah. level of... But it's just... it's. I think it's not talked about enough stalking because, actually, if you look at the stats, it's like... Is it quite common? I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't have them to hand. I don't want to get them wrong, but it's something like one in four women say that they have experienced some kind of stalking behaviour. I spoke to a stalking expert about it um, because, we, you know, I was thinking about should I do something publicly about it? You know, should I should I talk about this publicly? And I wasn't ready to do it. But I did speak to an expert who said there are seven types of stalker. I mean, literally, it's kind of incredible profiles for each type of stalker. That's and interesting. I yeah, you can, you can Google it. It's really fascinating. And, um, and it sort of ranges from, you know spandex who's who's going to go away to predator who is kind of the worst type of mm. you know who is going to who's stalking you to do you damage you know yeah. but then there's kind of the delusional stalker and the you know so there are so many different it's really fascinating but he sort of said to me look your your guy is the delusional love guy and they're very hard to get rid of because it's very hard to to convince them that they're not you know mm. in a relationship with you um and and i think that's emily maitlis's you know i don't presume to talk for her but i think that's the kind of stalker that she has and i think it is much harder to get get rid of that and you do end up with ptsd you know mm. i remember looking under looking under my bed every night you know triple locking doors when greg goes away i still look in every single room in our house including the basement you know i i, I sort of check twice everything because yeah. I'm still I will never be free of it completely yeah. and there are some you know there are some times when if strange men tweet at me or email me or, or send me messages on Instagram I, I'm very sorry to you but I normally block and delete it because I'm terrified you know I, even getting on buses now or whatever if I make eye contact with men that look at me not in an arrogant way but in a kind of you don't know what sets someone off when when someone decides to you know bombard you and and so I'm I'm much warier than I used to be, and 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 it, yeah, it, I think it does stay with you forever. Yeah. And even when I talk about it publicly, and I I'm, I'm and I am more public with my life now because I married someone who's you know a bit famous. I do worry: is he going to see that and come back? You know, because mm. after I remember afterwards, I just sort of shut everything down. I made my Twitter private. I, everything was kind of on lockdown. And now I you know I promote things and I do things, and and I yeah sometimes I think, is he going to notice that and come back? You know, and and. I'm sort of I'm I'm prepped for it if you know I'm prepped for the idea that it, it might yeah and how did it affect your running because it's it's so sad to me that that you, as you said you found mm. this kind of great sense of freedom and independence and you were just running around on your own at night or 
you know, in, in places you're not familiar with. How It must have been a, a huge... It was crap. And for yeah. a while I went to the gym and just used the running machine because I was just too scared to do it. And then after a while, after a while after that, I thought, honestly, it makes you have erratic thoughts. You go a bit, you know, like when you break up with someone, you cut your hair off. You know, it was like that. So I thought, I'll be safe if I just run down Holloway Road because it's a very busy arterial London road. So I used to just run up and down Holloway Road. <laughs> I saw you tweeted something, maybe it was a tweet, but I saw you said something like, it makes me really cross when people say that women shouldn't jog alone. So there was obviously a part of you that was very resistant mm. to the idea that in order to be safe, mm. you know... No, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't stop completely. I just sort of felt kind of hypervigilant and quite sort of terrified the whole time I was doing it. But I wouldn't stop doing it because that was then... By then, that was the one thing that was kind of... So you felt quite passionate and still feel passionate that, like, no, this is going to be something I do on my own. I'm not going to be made to feel like I'm putting myself in absolutely, danger. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, I, And also, another, you know, with anxiety, it, the more you avoid a thing that scares mm. you, the more you are locked into that, the more your brain is kind of reinforced and goes, aha, you know, it was scary, you should stay at home. So I have learned that every single thing that scares me, I now have to do, which is incredibly tiresome, and I hate it. But basically, <laughs> the moment I get a thought of, you know, oh, that that seems daunting, I'm like, oh, fuck, that means I have to do it now. And that is, a, I mean, it's brilliant for my anxiety, but yeah, so it means that, yeah, I mean, it is just, it's, it's basically holding the spider if you're scared of spiders until it gets boring. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Bella, for coming on the Hilo and for going off on all sorts of glorious tangents with us it was a very loosey-goosey conversation and that's mine and dolly's favorite type of conversation to have thank you very much for listening to the hilo you can email the hilo show at gmail.com or tweet us at the hilo show bye-bye bye you can say bye too bye <laughs> <laughs>